Hello. We're glad that you've joined us today as we explore spiritual things. We hope that you're doing well. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Today we'd like to talk about a subject that is of great importance for well over 40% of Americans, but something you tend not to hear a whole lot of from churches, and that is how single people can serve God. And in order to understand single people and how they can serve God, we're going to be turning and spending a lot of time in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and in chapter 7. Before we get to reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it's good for us to consider some of the things that Paul has been talking about here. We need to remember that Paul writes this letter uh, to the Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2. He's probably writing somewhere around year 55 from Ephesus. We can see that at the end of the book in chapter 16, 19, and 20. The Corinthian Christians are mostly Gentiles, and they're having a lot of challenges. Lots and lots of problems are manifest in this letter. Previously, in the first four chapters, Paul addressed matters of arrogance and pride. In chapter 5, he needed to talk about how to handle somebody who was committing flagrant sexual morality in the church. In the first half of chapter 6, he was talking about why Christians should not take each other to court. And then at the end of chapter 6, he explains the sinfulness in verses 12 through 20 of engaging in what in Greek is porneia, which is often translated as sexual morality or fornication. It means sexually deviant behavior, and it's something especially done with a porne, with a prostitute. And when we get to chapter 7, he just had this conversation about the sexual morality. Now he's turning to this question that we can see on the basis of 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, where the, he begins by saying, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. It indicates that Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is a response to a previous letter where the Corinthian Christians asked some questions about some of the things that Paul had talked about previously and some of the challenges they were experiencing amongst themselves. And so throughout chapter 7, Paul is going to take up this question about uh, being single or married and the issue of, of should a man touch a woman. Uh, we're not going to read the entire chapter because there are other segments that Paul is dealing with other issues. And we'll explain them as we get to them. But we will begin reading in chapter 7 in the first two verses. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. So this is the ideal situation in verse 1, that a man should not touch a woman or have sexual relations with a woman. Because of temptation to sexual behavior, however, as was seen in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, a man can have a wife and a woman can have a husband. This is also, interestingly, not a temptation limited to one gender. And he will go on to discuss in verses 3 through 5 uh, how married people should satisfy one another. Now in verse 6 he continues this discussion about singles and says, Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 
So here Paul is clarifying what he was talking about there in verses 1 and 2. That it's good for a man not to touch a woman, okay, but because of sexual morality, a man can have a wife and a wife and a woman can have a husband. So what he's saying here is he really wishes everybody could be like him. And he is single. He does not have a wife that's going around with him. Um, but he recognizes the temptation toward sexual immorality to engage in sexual behavior. And so marriage, he defines as a concession, not a command. Um, but each people, he knows everybody has their own gift. And so if, if they don't have the gift like he does, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. But he gives this counsel to people that those who are not married, they should stay unmarried. But if they are tempted to sin, as he says, it is better to marry than to burn. And that burning is with desire. Beginning in verse 10 and going through verse 16, Paul will go on to talk to married people about various situations involving separation, involving unbelieving spouses. And then in verse 17, he comes to this general principle that he explains from verse 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, you avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So we got this, these bookends here, the idea that uh, people are to lead the life God has called them to. That as they are called, they should remain. And he, he uses two illustrations of this, uh, circumcision and slavery. First of all, circumcision. You know, he's talking about that there are some who are circumcised. That is, they are of Jewish heritage. There are some who were not circumcised, who are of Gentile heritage. They've both come to the faith in Christ, and they have to remain as they are. The circumcised should not try to remove, to remove their circumcision, and the uncircumcision should not try to become circumcised. Those things don't matter. It's obedience to God that matters. And the same is, is with slavery and freedom. The ancient world featured slavery, and actually one of the, 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 the real groups of people who were really interested in Christianity were slaves. And so Paul says, if you're a slave when you're called, that you should not be concerned about it. Now here, interestingly, he does say, if you can get your freedom, you should. So it's not like he is completely okay with slavery. Uh, but the issue, of course, as he's trying to say, that's not the emphasis. If you're um, a, if you are a slave when you're called, you're still Christ's freedman. That, that Christ has set you free from bondage. Likewise, if you are a freeman, uh, when you uh, follow Jesus, you become his slave. And uh, he also has he also in, in, continues to say you should not become a slave of man. Okay, let's not be in bondage to human beings. Uh, so the idea is not to go be, find voluntary slavery. But as a recognition of this principle, in whatever condition each was called, there they should remain with God. So, 
what does this have to do with anything? He's bringing up the situation. What does this have to do with marriage? Well, the rest of the chapter is really an application of that principle to marriage and a conclusion of his discourse. So beginning in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and... Those who buy as though though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul now takes this idea, because of this present distress, it is better for a person to remain as they are called in terms of marriage. If they are already married, they should stay married. But if they're not married, they should not get married. So what is this present distress? That's kind of this major thing to understand this passage. You know, what is he talking about? Is the present distress a a very narrowly defined contextual time of persecution, something that would last for a few years in Corinth and then pass away? It's possible, but it Paul doesn't otherwise, in this letter, indicate that there is a lot of significant persecution against the Corinthians. Uh, Quite frankly, the Corinthians are so worldly and sinful in their own ways that there's probably not a whole lot of reason for them to be persecuted. Uh, So that does not seem to be what Paul has in mind. Is the present distress Paul's way of saying the Lord was coming soon, and that procreation and marriage is therefore irrelevant? This is a, a, a very continual stream of interpretation of this passage, and it's easy to understand that because of verses 29 through 31, about the appointed time growing very short. But is the present distress a way that Paul speaks about life on earth before the resurrection? Well, uh, this letter, as we saw, is written around the year 55, and it's now 2014, so we're uh, reaching over 1,950 years since Paul wrote this. And therefore, in light of 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31, talking about the fact that the present form of this earth is passing away, this is the best 
way to understand this passage in terms of interpretation for modern application. So this present distress is not something we can just contextually uh, dispense with and say it was a one time and not now. Uh, this is the concern that Paul has throughout. And so those who are married should stay married, and those who are unmarried should stay that way. But if the unmarried want to marry, they have not sinned, but will have trouble, in verses 27 and 28. But then through 29 through 31, he sounds very prophetic and, and eschatological in his warning, uh, that everybody should act as, they, as if they are not in the condition, and they are deprived of the things they've been searching after in the world, because it's passing away, and the eternal things are all that are going to endure. But then in verses 32 through 35, he gets very realistic. And he talks about the challenges experienced by married people. That unmarried people have only to care about the things of the Lord. But those who are married are a divided mind because they want to do the things of the Lord and do that, but they also are concerned about pleasing their husband or wife. And they have conflict in themselves and within their relationship. And then, in verses 36-38, Paul addresses those who are betrothed. That those who burn with desire should marry. But if those who can maintain self-control and continue in that relationship should do so. That those who marry do well, but those who refrain from marriage do better, in verse 38, which is a very important principle to keep in mind. Now, there's a lot of textual confusion here based upon the version that you're reading. The English Standard Version admittedly kind of cleans it up a little bit here. Uh, it, the Greek text speaks of a man and his virgin. And there's two ways of taking that. The American Standard... New American Standard and English Revised Version of 1881 all understand it in terms of the fact that the father of the child has the ability to marry off the child. And therefore, when it's a, a, a man and his virgin, they took that to mean that it's his daughter. And that's why you will see in some of those texts uh, italicize his virgin daughter and how a man relates to the virgin daughter. Uh, but that makes this passage rather creepy and kinky in verse 36 when Paul says that um, if if he um, is not behaving properly toward his, this child, this, this person, this virgin. So if he's not behaving properly toward the virgin, he's supposed to marry the virgin off, which almost seems like this person would have desire for this incestuous relationship between a father and his daughter, uh, which is very disturbing and would be a sinful impulse uh, that should be challenged. Uh, it's incest, and that's wrong. Um, and we already had in chapter 5 uh, what happens when there's sexual morality not even known among the Gentiles. Uh, so that that understanding of the text is probably not accurate. What the English Standard has done is more accurate. The man and his virgin goes back to that betrothal relationship. And we need to keep the context in mind that this is ancient Rome. This isn't 21st century America. People aren't independent young people out in the world looking for potential mates and marrying for love. Uh, young people are part of a community where the families are trying to gain social and economic prominence. And so, for the most part, marriages are arranged between families and two people are betrothed. In Matthew chapter 1, we have a great example of that between Joseph and Mary, where there is a force of marriage there between Joseph and Mary that would require Joseph to divorce Mary. But there was, if, if he was going to put her away for what he imagined to be her fornication. Um, but there's no sexual relationship yet. That it's a commitment that has the force of marriage, but not the the sexual behavior that goes along with marriage. Uh, 
Now, in a betrothal arrangement, the betrothed, of course, is supposed to be a virgin. That's why Paul would say a man and his virgin, uh, which is being translated as betrothed here in 1 Corinthians 7 in the English Standard Version. We need to also keep in mind that this was not a decision that the child could make. It was a decision made for the child by the parents. And so, in the betrothal relationship, the fathers would would make that connection. And so, they would be betrothed. They had no choice about their betrothal. But, of course, they did have choice over whether they were going to consummate the relationship. And so, what Paul is encouraging them to do is, hey, if, they, if they're burning with passion, they should get married. But if they can maintain self-control and not engage in the sexual behavior and to fully devote themselves to the Lord and not to uh, pleasing each other sexually, they should do so. And that is extremely countercultural for the time. And you can imagine the kind of arguments that would go on about disrespecting parents and things of that nature and how interesting it would be that you have these, this man and woman who are supposed to be getting married, uh, but they instead choose not to marry but to individually devote themselves to the Lord, to, to, to encourage one another to, to, to uh, fully uh, pursue the things of the Lord and not this sexual relationship. He then, at the end of this chapter, in verse 39 and 40, talk about the widows. Wives are hus- bound to their husbands as long as the husband live. But the spouse dies, the widow is free to marry in the Lord. But she's better if she can remain unmarried. And yes, we need to keep 1 Timothy 5 in mind, where, Tim, where Paul will tell Timothy there are these widows who are, who are younger widows. They should marry because they're, uh, they're, they're tempted to become gossips and things of that nature. And, and, and so again, we have to understand what Paul is saying here. Uh, first of all, again, a woman did not have a choice about who she would marry in her first marriage. The, ch- the freedom comes, though, beca- in, when there is death. And this is the ancient world. There was not nearly the kind of life expectancy we have now. And there are plenty of women and men who would find themselves widowed at some point in their lives. And once they're widowed, they now do have the ability to choose if they're going to marry again or not. And if they do marry, who they're going to marry. And that is why Paul says that widows should marry only in the Lord. That they should marry a fellow Christian if they need to. And it's interesting, throughout this whole passage, Paul has the same advice. You can marry if you want to or need to, but it is better to remain single in order to most effectively serve the Lord. So this is what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7. This is the majority of what is in Scripture for single people. And this is one of those situations where we really do notice the contextual difference, where the way things were in 1st century Rome and the way things are in 21st century America are quite different. In first century Roman world, you were connected to somebody. Even in, and so you've got this very interesting situation here where you've got two people who are supposed to be getting married, who are betrothed to each other, but they're choosing instead to devote themselves fully to, to God, to trust in the Lord Jesus and the resurrection for uh, their uh, future. Uh, We've got to remember this: how challenging this would have been back in the days of Israel. You know, you look at the curses of the covenant, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and all the curses are that somebody would lose their land and they would have no offspring. And so the idea of people voluntarily not having offspring and cutting off the generations was just a complete repudiation of their of what Laodicea is their purpose in their nation on earth. Uh, but that's only possible through Jesus and the resurrection, where Jesus as a single man demonstrates the way. That sure, he lived, he died, but that wasn't the end of him or his line. It was only the beginning of his reign because God raised him in power. And it's a confidence in the Lord of the resurrection as as the source of, of eternality. And not 
the endeavor of immortality through genetics. Not saying everybody who marries and has kids is thinking of it that way, but that is definitely one of the uh, contrasts involved here in, in, in the Bible. But we find ourselves in a very different situation, because in the modern world, people who are single are, they're not automatically connected to somebody, they're not betrothed to somebody. Um, the, the average year age of marriage is getting later and later, it's now in the late 20s. And so there is an expectation in, in society that people are going to remain unmarried through at least 10 years, if not 15 or even 20 years of sexual maturity. And to maintain, in, in, in course, according to Christianity, that fornication is, is immoral, that Christians are able to maintain that kind of self-control. So in the, in the first century, you don't have a lot, you don't, maybe only the widows who have chosen not to remarry, are the only people akin to the people in churches today who are willingly single, that they're not betrothed. They, they, there's, and, of course, there's this whole idea here that in 1 Corinthians 7, these people are devoted to the Lord fully. There's no intention of getting married. If, they, if they're looking for somebody, they don't really need to look that far because they have their betrothed right there. They, they have immediate access to marriage. Uh, whereas in churches today and in the in the world today, we have lots of people who are single who are looking to marry, who are looking for that right person to marry. And so we need to understand that gap and why Scripture doesn't have a lot to say about the marriage selection process. Who should you marry? Because in the ancient world, in the in the time of the Bible, and quite frankly, for most of human history, that was chosen for you. You just had to figure out how to love and to develop the relationship with the person that was chosen for you, more than figuring out who that person would be. Um, but that doesn't mean that we're completely left without any insight. But before we get into what, 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 uh, how to apply what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's important for us to note just how strange what we've talked about in 1 Corinthians 7 would sound to a lot of Christians today. Because... Through the centuries, Paul's message has kind of been almost reversed in the eyes of many. Where Christians too often speak and act as if you can stay single if you want, or you need to. But it's better to get married in order to most effectively serve the Lord. When Paul has said, well, you can get married if you want to or need to, but it's better to stay single in order to most effectively serve the Lord. In, in the church... And among Christians, being married with children is not only the quote-unquote normal situation, it is the expected and almost even demanded situation. There have been so many well-meaning elders and preachers who exhort all Christians to say, you know, you guys have got to plan on being elders and elders' wives. And to aspire to that. But there's very little encouragement given to those who might remain single to devote themselves to the Lord. You'd never hear that exhortation. You know, you should some of you should think about how can I fully serve the Lord and maybe it's just better for me to stay single to do that. You don't hear that kind of exhortation. If you are single among Christians, you're under constant pressure to find a spouse and to marry. That when you're having conversations oftentimes with other Christians, it gravitates toward that marital status about if they found somebody or not and how the relationships are going. And how many have experienced well-meaning Christians who are playing matchmaker. Uh, that there's this perfect guy or girl in this place or that place or this person or that person and, and where that all goes. 
And let's be honest, among churches of Christ, it, Jesus and Paul sent their resume places, they'd have a hard time finding preaching jobs. Because churches want a preacher with wife and children. And that unmarried men who would teach and preach are looked upon with apprehension and suspicion, as if they're somehow untrustworthy because they do not have the appropriate outlet for their sexual desires. As if somebody uh, who is married is, is completely immune to those kind of temptation desires as well. Uh, that's, but that's probably another story for another uh, conversation and lesson. And because of all this, in the church, single people are too often left to feel alone and disconnected. They're made to feel like they are quote-unquote incomplete Christians until they find that special someone. Uh, Many have put it in terms that they are looked upon as if they are junior varsity. And it's the Christians who are married and who have children who are the varsity. Uh, And we don't see that in the New Testament. In fact, this is not the gospel preached by the Apostle Paul at all, and therefore it should not be, and we should not tolerate it. We need to appreciate what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. And let's be honest, this passage is way too often taken to extremes. Uh, in many ways, it's underemphasized today, especially among uh, a lot of Christians. Uh, it's, it's kind of neglected among evangelicals uh, and Protestantism in general. And part of that is because it was overemphasized in the few first few centuries after the uh, the first century, and especially as seen in Roman Catholicism, where there was the expectation um, that married people would live celibately, and that if you wanted to be an, uh, to serve and minister in the church, uh, you would have to be celibate in order to do that, uh, contrary to First Timothy chapter four, one through four, and. What's interesting is there's this out of whack about either well over glorifying singleness or over glorifying family. When Paul is very realistic in what he has to say in First Corinthians seven, he knows that humans have a hard time keeping their hands off one another. That you know, rule in kindergarten: keep your hands off each other. Uh, there's the you know there's the the touching each other of fighting, touching each other of loving, and and we don't do very well at, at keeping our hands off one another in either context. It's interesting that throughout chapter 7, marriage is never considered sinful. It's not considered the ideal, but it's always completely satisfactory. Paul knows and has complete expectation that there will be many who will marry, and they will have children, and they will be able to serve as elders if they meet the other qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But here Paul provides a robust defense for those who would remain unmarried as to glorify God in Christ, able to serve Jesus with fewer encumbrances and married Christians. And we need to respect that. And we need to proclaim that. So, how can Christians effectively serve God while single? Based upon what we see here, we can provide some exhortation. First and foremost, very important. If you are single, you are not lacking, deficient, or incomplete. If anybody's insufficient, it's married Christians because they are lacking and deficient self-control. We need to keep 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35 in mind. It, whether you intend to get married or not, serving God is not only not just for married Christians, but in fact, those who are single are more effectively able to accomplish that because you will never be able to more single-mindedly pursue the work of God in Christ as you can when you are single. When you are single, do not consider yourself as on hold, or in a holding pattern, or somehow in transition. Right now, you have full integrity as a child of God. And even if you remain single for the rest of your life, you will never be alone. For you abide in God, are part of God's family in the church, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12-28. And you are serving the risen Lord Jesus, who was 
single his entire life. You are not somehow less of a person because you're not married. On the other hand, you got to keep in mind that throughout 1 Corinthians 7, Paul has this expectation that, okay, you are single to be devoted to the Lord and active in the life of the church. Therefore, remaining single is no excuse for narcissism, selfishness, or not striving to work effectively with other Christians. Some people tend to be single because they don't play well with others. And their personality and their way of doing things is just too abrasive. They refuse to engage in the compromise and the the process is necessary in order to effectively live with another person. Uh, And we need to be very clear that, yes, God honors single Christians. But single Christians don't have the right to be abrasive and unwilling to perform what Paul, what God says of all Christians, Philippians 2, 1 through 4, that all of us need to consider the needs of others as more important than ourselves and to seek the, to br- uh, encourage our neighbor for his own good. So all of that cannot be a complete insistence on ourselves. And, and if you're single, you have a lot of time, and it's very tempting to spend the time on yourself as opposed to send it, using it to serve or, and to study and to do the type of things that God would have you to do in Christ. And so uh, when you are single, you must devote yourself as single to effectively accomplish the work of the Lord while single and not squander that time uh, in, in more selfish, narcissistic pursuits. On the other side of this, it would be remiss of us if we did not speak to married Christians about how they can encourage single Christians. And the first thing that we who are married Christians, I am married, and in fact, uh, I personally uh, did not have much time as, as, as a true single. I went, and within a year of graduating high school, a year and a half of graduating high school, I was already married. So I have not had the single experience and do not claim to have had the single experience. But as, as somebody who is married, and for the rest of us who are married, uh, we need to recognize that First Corinthians 7 has some hard truths for us. We have chosen to marry rather than to burn. There's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing wrong with that. But it does mean we have chosen the lesser good. That because of this we have conflict, and that we can relate to that divided affections of which Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. That you're not able to fully devote yourself to the Lord like you would otherwise be able to because you have to be concerned for the things for you about your wife or husband and children. That married Christians really need to respect and honor single Christians for who they are. They are joint heirs with God and Christ. They are full servants of God and they should not be made to be felt as less important or less Christian because they're not married uh, that they're junior varsity, or that somehow they're incomplete, that they should be affirmed and encouraged as full members of the congregation. It should not be the goal of married Christians just to marry off all the single Christians, especially when those single Christians don't want that matchmaking help. Married Christians must not imagine that single Christians are miserable and alone because they're single. No relationship status is ideal. You can be happily single and miserably married just as easily as miserably single and happily married. Just because you're married doesn't mean that makes it all better. Instead, married Christians should give consideration to the needs of single Christians. Not just to make all conversations about marriage, relationships, or about children. And find ways of incorporating single Christians into the social activities. To see them more than just babysitters or Bible class teachers for children's classes. 
We all, in fact, do well to restore these truths of 1 Corinthians 7 in the church, not to look down in any way upon those who serve the Lord Jesus while single. Now, this is always a countercultural message, because even if people don't like procreation, people tend to like sex. And that rational people would consciously choose to renounce sex and procreation in order to serve the Lord Jesus is beyond the imagination of a lot of people in this world who are so saturated with sex on the brain. Unfortunately, it seems just as unfathomable to many people in the church, and that is to their shame. Because we need to affirm Paul's message. It's not wrong, and it can't be good to marry, but it's better to remain single and serve the Lord without divided affections. And that is why single Christians should recognize their full participation in Christ in the life of the church, even as single, and serve the Lord fully. And that we married Christians should honor single Christians that are in our midst to recognize they are not deficient or incomplete, and to find ways to incorporate them into the life of the church. And let us all serve the Lord Jesus in whatever relationship state we find ourselves, to his glory and honor, until the day he returns. And if there's any way that we can be a further encouragement to you, uh, if there's more that you'd like to talk about in terms of 1 Corinthians 7, uh, you have some questions about it, maybe you have questions about something else about Christianity or the Bible, uh, maybe you just need somebody to talk to, maybe you need prayer requests, you're going through some difficulties, uh, any way we can be of service, please let me know. Please contact me through my website, theverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. And if you live in Los Angeles or travel in the Los Angeles area, we encourage you to come and check us out. We'd love to get to know you. But you can learn more about us online. We're on VenaChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Google+, Meetup, and Twitter, mostly at Venice Church. We again thank you. Have a great day.